Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, with the wet roads from our state not knowing what season it wants to be in, you've likely found yourself in a car wash. How many of you have washed your car in the last like two weeks? Anybody? Yeah. So I wash my car about once a year. Um, it's, uh, part of it's because I'm cheap and part of it's because if you've seen my car, you'd go, ah, is it really worth washing? I don't know. Um, but I was driving back from Des Moines on my way back from the SALT conference a couple weeks ago, and I stopped in Ankeny and found myself pulling into the Oasis car wash. Oasis is such an interesting name for, because that means like a place with, a fertile place within an arid land. Like, what does that say about Ankeny? So, but I pull in, and something that drives me a little crazy about car washes is that they don't post the prices until you're right you don't know how much it is until you're up to the screen. You know what I'm talking about? So every time I go to a car wash, I feel like I'm in a low-key hostage situation because by the time I'm up at the screen, there's already a car behind me, right? And so now you're in this scenario where like, how much do I have to pay you to just let me go? Like, how much do you want, okay? And so I, I picked the, you know, the wash and I spent way too much and I went through the, the, the tricolor Undercoat, clear lava, WXYZ, LMNOP, typhoon, you know, wash, whatever. And come out the other end, and car wash did a great job for what it could do for my car. And so uh, I came out probably as like the, the shiniest thing on God's green earth in that moment, right? You know, like air traffic control needed to be notified, like, hey guys, don't fly like a moth to a flame at that car down there in Ankeny, you know. And so, and this might just be me, but whenever I go through a car wash, maybe you feel this way. When you, when you come out of a car wash, don't you just feel a little better than everyone else? Like, like yeah, you know. And you kind of hope that people notice, you know. They, they, you kind of hope that they notice how shiny your car is compared to their car. But then if you're me, you realize you're in a Subaru and no one cares, and like a dirty anything else is better than a clean Subaru, and so you kind of like get your hopes dashed there, but it, there's something within us that wants to be seen, in, in some, like in sometimes really petty ways, right, like going through a car wash, but whether it's, maybe for you it's not a car wash, maybe for you it's a, it's a particular outfit, Maybe for you, it's a perfectly manicured lawn. Like there's something within us that wants to be seen. And we will, in fact, spend a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of money, not only wanting to be seen, but wanting to control as much as we can the way that people see us. Maybe that defined your morning this morning. As you stood in front of your closet trying to pick out which outfit do I want to wear? I'm going to go into a scenario where there might be a lot of people. How will they see me? Maybe your significant other was standing by the door waiting for you to finish your makeup. Because you're going to be seen. We all want in some way to be seen. And we want to control how others See us. And as we move into chapter six this morning, Jesus is going to speak to this exact desire within us. Now, at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, 
If you've been walking through this sermon series with us for the last several weeks, we're coming to a point as we begin chapter six where there's a bit of a shift in what Jesus is talking about. And what we saw at the very beginning in in chapter five is that Jesus was talking about the character of kingdom people. And he kind of, it kind of culminates in this, uh, you could call it the key verse of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, verse 20, where he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, the scribes and the Pharisees were the most religious people of that day. The Pharisees knew their Bibles, had most of it memorized. The scribes, the, the printing press had not been invented yet. And so their actual job was to hand write the scriptures because that is how their copies were made. These people's job was to spend time with the Bible and just write it and write it and write it and write it. And unless your righteousness surpasses their righteousness, you will not get in to the kingdom of heaven. And what we talked about was that what Jesus is saying when your righteousness must surpass their righteousness is not only that the righteousness that comes from Christ is greater, but also that your righteousness needs to go beyond the actions of your hands and extend into the attitudes of your heart. The true righteousness isn't mainly about doing particular things. It's about being a particular kind of people. And so now as we begin chapter six and for the next three weeks, what we are going to see Jesus talk about is what are the motives that you have behind specific religious practices as kingdom people? And those religious practices that he's gonna talk about are giving, praying, and fasting. Now clearly these aren't the only practices that we see in the Bible that should be true of all believers But these three things, giving, praying, and fasting, were at the very core of the Jewish life. And so what Jesus is doing is is he's going to have these serve as an example to us of what must be true of all Christian conduct. And so in typical Jesus fashion, he goes beyond focusing on the actions and gets to the heart. He gets to the motives behind those actions. Because what he's saying is that for kingdom people, Why we do what we do is just as important as what we do. Why you do what you do is just as, as, if not more important than what you do as a Christian. And so he starts off this whole section as he's gonna walk through these three practices with chapter six, verse one, where he says this. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. Now, if, you, if you've been paying attention as we've been going through this series, the question might come into your mind, well, Jesus just said, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. But then in, didn't he just say in chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus, do you you have memory problems? Did you forget what you just said? Practice your righteousness in front of others. And now you're saying, don't practice your righteousness in front of others. What's going on here? Now, before we answer that question, because there is a good answer to that, don't miss the fact that Jesus assumes that good works are in fact a defining characteristic in the life of a believer. 
That if you are a kingdom person, if you are a follower of Christ, then a concern for righteousness, a concern for good works, Jesus is assuming that concern in the life of a a believer. Now, don't get trapped into thinking that because forgiveness is by grace through faith, that that means that righteous living isn't a concern for the believer. There are a lot of Christians who think that because salvation is by grace through faith, that freedom in the Christian life means that we no longer have to worry about, we no longer have to care about or be concerned about doing spiritual things. That somehow, in the minds of some Christians, Caring about spiritual disciplines, caring about financial generosity, caring about, about matters of deliberate self-denial, of taking up our cross and following Christ, of not being true to ourselves, that sometimes that, that is categorized automatically as self-righteous legalism. But just like Mark said at our summit yesterday, I think he said it really well, is that too many Christians define freedom as the ability to do whatever you want to do. That for us as expressive individualistic Westerners, we think that freedom is freedom to do whatever I want to do. When in reality, Christian freedom is freedom to do whatever God has called us to do. That you're not free to just do whatever you want to do. But now because of Christ, we are free to say no to sin and yes to God. That we are now no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. And so Jesus doesn't just say, be careful not to practice your righteousness. He doesn't just, he doesn't say that as, as if practicing righteousness was the problem. And he doesn't say, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. As though the issue is that your righteousness is visible. What does he say? Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Ah. You see, Jesus reconciles the tension between chapter 5, verse 16, good works publicly, and chapter 6, verse 1, good works privately, by asking the question, what is your ultimate motivation in the good works that you do? Is it ultimately to be praised by others? Or is it ultimately so that others would praise God? Look at verse two. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly I tell you, they have their reward. Notice that Jesus says, whenever you give to the poor, assuming that giving, that generosity is something that kingdom people do. He doesn't say if you give to the poor. He says, whenever you give to the poor. He also says it in verse three, when you give to the poor. In other words, Jesus assumes not only that that spirit, that a concern for spiritual works is true in the life of the believer, but he also assumes that generosity is true in the life of a believer. Is that true of you? If you are in Christ, if you claim to be a Christian, is your life one marked by planned generosity? If someone were to ask you, why do you work? What would you say? If someone were to ask you, why did you choose the, the major that you have chosen? Or the major that you switched majors to like three times, right? 
Why have you changed majors a hundred times? Why do you work? Why do you work where you work? Why do you work as hard as you do? Why do you work overtime? What would your answer be? See, I, th- I, think, I think part of the issue with our approach to generosity is that we don't actually have a really good so that to our work. Or that our so that is misaligned with the so that of scriptures. Here's what I mean. Ephesians chapter four, verse 28 says this. Paul says this in regards to work. He says, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. You see what this means? This means that not only are we to work hard and not be a mooch, like, we, we shouldn't just expect other people to provide for us that if you are able to work, then you should work and you should work hard unto the Lord because the Lord sees, like, you should do hard work, but your work has a greater purpose than simply getting you what you need and you what you want. But what it means is that for kingdom people, working hard is not only to provide for our own needs, but it is also so that we have extra to provide for the needs of others. Some of you are incredibly business savvy. You know how to invest. You, 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 know, you know how to like move money around. You know how to start things. You, you know how to make money. I, I, I have a few friends who, I don't know that this is a spiritual gift, but you can say they have the spiritual gift or a gift of they just make a lot of money. And what is so amazing is that many of them actually understand that the so that for their hard work and their making money is not just for them to be able to get what they want, but it is in fact for them to be able to give to provide for the needs of others. Does the so that of your work only involve your needs and wants or does it include the needs of others? Is generosity a planned event in your life or is it an afterthought? Like when you sit down to make a budget, I would suggest that you actually make a budget. That's a wise thing to do. And when you sit down to make a budget, do you put, do you plan to be generous? Do you put that at the top of your budget, plan to be generous, and then let everything else in that budget flow from what you've already planned to do? Or do you do what most people do and you put generosity at the very end of your budget? So after everything you need and want is accounted for, then if there happens to be anything left over, then I'll give a little bit of a tip to the needs around me. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. Because again, in typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't just say that you should be generous, but he zeroes in on how you should be generous. Look back at verse two. So, when, so whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have your reward, their reward. Now, it's unlikely that people were actually hiring 
trumpeteers to go before them into the synagogue, like tooting their own horn. This is where we get that from, right? It's unlikely that that was literally happening. Jesus is using what Stephen referred to, mentioned last week as, as hyperbole. Like what he's saying is, is don't give, don't be generous, hoping that people will see you and applaud you for your generosity. Maybe, maybe some of you grew up in a church where they passed the plate. Any of you grew up in a church like that? I did. And I remember, I remember as a kid sitting there watching as, as the plate went by in the church service, there's that one guy who like pulls out that wad of cash and just like plops it in there, you know? Or, or maybe like the more subtle version or the like people, they put their check in there, but they leave it face up. You know what I mean? So <laughs> how cool, right? Your name's right there. And then the amount, oh, oh, I just threw it in there. It just happened to everyone down the aisle can see what I gave. How about that? I had a guy who, this, it wasn't here. It was uh, at the church I was at before coming here. I had a guy who called me. There was a sense of urgency in his voice so that he needed to meet. And so I made time. We grabbed coffee together. And the reason why he needed to meet was because he, he, had, uh, he had received uh, a sum of money from a lawsuit settlement. And he was asking how he could tithe on that sum of money. Now, the interesting thing was that he was not new to our church. And he, it, it was not the first time he had given anything. And it was difficult in that moment because I told him, I was like, you can give it how you've given anything else. And I don't know his heart. But it was difficult in that moment to not have to wonder, is the reason you wanted to meet because you're actually ignorant about how to give? Or is it because you wanted to make sure that someone knew that you were giving and what you were giving? Whenever you give to the poor... Don't sound a trumpet before you as the, as the hypocrites do. Now, now, I will say this. I have not had that kind of an experience here. It's not as though we have people wheeling in a wheelbarrow going, I thought I'd given nickels this morning, just, and then just dumping it in the, in the box out there. You know, like, please don't do that, by the way. That'd be a pain in the butt for everyone, including you. And it ripped the box off the wall. It's like just, but we don't have people doing that, you know, just dumping it all in there. And we don't have people, we don't have people who give and then try to throw their weight around based on their giving. You know what I mean? Like the big givers, like the oligarchs, Right? trying to influence leadership because, well, if the big givers want this, then I've not had that experience. So while the challenge that some of us need to hear is, that, is to embrace a lifestyle of planned giving, many of you are already setting a pace of planned, humble, quiet generosity. So maybe it goes without saying, but it needs to be said out loud. Thank you for being a church like that. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He, he says, not only should your generosity be done so that others don't notice, he goes on in verse three and four, check this out. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, not only are you to not make your generosity a big deal before others, 
but we shouldn't even make our generosity a big deal to ourselves. Again, he's using hyperbole. Like, it's impossible. It's, how would your right hand not know what your left hand is doing? What he's saying is, is don't make it a big deal even to yourself. Isn't it annoying how Jesus sometimes really, really gets to the heart of like how we can puff ourselves up with pride? Because we live in the Midwest. We're Iowa nice. It's kind of tacky to talk about finances, right? Like it would, be, it would be distasteful, you know, to walk around and like display all of our, you know, philanthropy and like all these things that you give. But how easy it is for us to be generous and then pull out our mental notebook and put a check mark in the special column for spiritual merit. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. He says, don't keep these books at all. Don't keep spiritual ledgers. Don't keep profit and loss accounts in your life. Don't write a diary in this sense. Just forget about it. Do things as you are moved by God and led by the Holy Spirit, and then forget all about them. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet to be applauded by others. And when you give to the poor, don't do it to even applaud yourself. Now you might ask, well, who are the poor? Who are the poor? This isn't the only definition you could give, but I think a helpful definition, especially for those of us who, who live in a, in a, I mean, we live in America, right? And relative to the world, we are very rich. So who are the poor? The poor is anyone with a need that you have the ability to meet with what you have. Anyone with a need that you have the ability to meet with what you have. And while I think what's, what is clearly in view in this passage is financial poverty, economic poverty, like this, this would have been a very common thing in Jesus' day for you to walk around and there'd be beggars on the streets who that was their only source of income, either because they had a mental or physical disability or had been cast out by their family, that that was the only way that they could provide for themselves was based on the generosity of other people. I think that's primarily in view here, but I also think it's appropriate for us to expand our understanding of poverty beyond just economic poverty, though it is true that we still certainly have economic poverty even in the Cedar Valley. But there's social poverty, isn't there? People who are undervalued, have fewer rights, maybe, a, maybe don't have a voice in particular contexts because of their status or their position. Is there anyone in your life that you could use your status, your position, your influence to give a voice to them when otherwise they would go unheard? We have educational poverty. We have children in our schools right now, just across the street, who fall asleep at their desks and the teachers let them sleep, not because the teacher is being lazy, but because you can only imagine the kind of night that that child had at home the night before. So out of compassion and wanting the child to get much needed sleep, that child simultaneously gets further and further behind in their studies 
and could really use someone who would come alongside them, care for them, and help them get back up to speed with their education. You could say this could coincide with parental poverty, of children with mothers and fathers who aren't present physically or emotionally. You could also say there's a poverty that, that hits every single one of us from birth, that we are spiritually impoverished before a holy God and in need of the reconciling love of Christ in response to the gospel. And certainly there's economic poverty, people with needs that go unmet because of a lack of resources. The poor is anyone with a need that you have the ability to meet with what you have. Now what does it mean to be generous? I think a helpful definition of generosity is that generosity is going without something you want or deserve in order to provide for what someone else needs. Going without something you want or deserve in order to provide for what someone else needs. Because it's really, really easy, isn't it, to, to be generous after I've already been abundantly generous to myself. It's kind of like imagine that you're, you are... Uh, you're standing on a buffet line serving the food, right? Imagine the size of portions you would give if you were full in that moment or if you were hungry. My guess is if you were full, you would actually give more because who cares? I'm already full. But what might it look like in our lives if we didn't wait to be generous until we already had everything we want? Because there's nothing strange about that kind of generosity. There's nothing out of the ordinary about that kind of gen generosity. There's nothing countercultural about that kind of generosity. Yeah, I'll give after I already have gotten everything that I want. But what might it look like if we actually went without some things that we want because we recognize that not getting what we want or deserve is a small, small price to pay in order to give what someone else needs. Because here's the thing. Kingdom people recognize that that is precisely what Christ has done for you. That when you were a spiritual beggar, Christ looked on you with compassion. He gave up what he rightfully deserved in order to give you what you so desperately needed. Romans 5 says, but God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There are some of you in this room who you know all too well the absence of a father who's told you that he loves you. You didn't have a dad who, who said things like that. You didn't have a dad who said that he's pleased with you, who said that he loves you, who said that he's proud of you, who said that you're beautiful. And there are many of you who have spent years of your life trying to get from others what you always wished you would have gotten from your father. What's so interesting here, in these first few sections of Matthew chapter 6, notice the amount of times that Jesus refers to God as Father. It is the most condensed number of verses 
where Jesus refers to God as Father in the entire scriptures. Now, why? Why does Jesus talk about God as Father over and over and over again in these verses that he's talking about spiritual disciplines? Why does he do that? It's to make the point that, yes, there is a way to do good religious things for the applause and acceptance of people, but when you know the love of the Father— when you know the pleasure of the Father, when you know the acceptance of your heavenly Father, why in the world would you strive for the applause of people? Brothers and sisters, remember the great love that the Father has for you. Remember that he sees you, he hears you, he knows you. He sees every small moment of obedience and walking in accordance to his commands. And he is pleased. So stop striving for the applause of people when you know already that you have the acceptance of your heavenly Father. Final question. How can we know when we should show our good works like Matthew 5, 16, and when we should hide our good works, like chapter 6, verse 1. How should we know when we do that? I think F.B. Bruce said it well when he said, real simply, show when tempted to hide, and hide when tempted to show. Show your good works when you're tempted to hide them, and hide your good works when you're tempted to show them. It, re it reminds me of John chapter 12, Remember when, uh, when many believed in Christ, but they weren't willing to say it? And why weren't they willing to say it? Because they loved the glory of men more than the glory of God. They hid. They hid. We should show our good works when we're tempted to hide them. And we should hide our good works when that little voice in our head tries to begin to manipulate the situation so that we would be seen by others, so that they would think well of us and not well of our heavenly Father. Show when tempted to hide. Hide when tempted to show because you know that your Father knows and is pleased. My prayer for us this morning, church, is that the approval of our Father would bring us more joy than the approval of people. I'd love to pray that over us as we continue. Let's pray. Father, would it be true of us that your joy, your pleasure, your approval is of greater worth and joy in our lives than the approval of people? Would you empower us by your Spirit to show our good works when we, when we are tempted to hide, when we are tempted to just, to just melt into the background, to not identify with you, Christ. And then to also have the wisdom to hide our good works when we are tempted to show them so that we would bring glory to ourselves and not to you. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.